This morning we will be looking at chapter 27 with just a bit on each edge. The end of chapter 26 and the beginning of chapter 28. This is a fascinating story. It is a story of four people, Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. And in the main, none of them looks very good by the end of it. And I think we can be tempted to look at this text and to pick portions out and decide what we like about this person and what we like about that person, when in reality what we need to do is see here a case of people attempting to interact with the Lord God on their own terms, in different ways, but on their own terms. So let us now look, beginning here at chapter 26 and 4, is the very Word of God. It is eternal. It is unchangeable. It is completely without error, authoritative, and sufficient. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love. And bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, Obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. 
And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Had you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. 
Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him there a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Isaac, if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land and your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives that he had, Mahalatha, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word. That you would teach us, Lord, how like these people we are. How in need of a Savior we are. And how great a God you are. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Do you know what it's like to give up control? It's hard, isn't it? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. If any of you have ever been about the task of teaching a child to drive, you know what that's like. You sit in the passenger seat. And as things happen, you find yourself doing this to the floorboard. Why won't it break? You wish you had one of those driver instructor cars that actually did have a brake on that side. 
You're so used to being in control of the vehicle. It's not just that you're not in control. You're scared because things might not be in the best of hands, so to speak. Perhaps you feel like that even during the day as you look and see the events that are happening in our world and they're spinning and spinning and you know you have absolutely no control over that. You can't make the stock market go up or down. You can't shoot down missiles thousands of miles away. It's completely out of your control. But there's a question really we need to ask ourselves, and that is, do we really want to be in control? Is that a wise thing? Because you see, if sin is folly, if sin is foolishness, then the ultimate example of sin is trying to wrest control away from an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God. But you see, that is exactly what we see happening here this morning in this text. Everyone is scheming, and on the surface it seems that they are scheming against each other, but really what they are scheming against is God. They want things to work out as they have planned, as they desire, as they want. And God is simply a person who is in the way, who needs to be shunted off to the side until he's needed. And the real danger for us is that that is how we live our lives. Whether it is those of us who profess the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and want to put him aside until we need him. Or those of us who have refused to bow the knee to King Jesus and think there'll always be time to deal with him. Well, this morning I would like us to see two main perspectives on control, man's and God's. First, we will look at the foolishness of controlling God, of trying to. And then secondly, we will see God showing his control to his people, an encouragement and a chastisement. The foolishness of trying to control God and seeing that God shows his control. Let's begin then by looking at the first of our characters who tried to control God. And that is the great patriarch, Isaac. The very first thing we see is that Isaac is about to try and place his willfulness upon the will of God. Now, remember the context of this story. Do not see this as merely some kind of soap opera. There is much more going on here. You see, remember in chapter 25, in verse 23, Rebekah was told that the young, older shall serve the younger that there were two nations in her womb that were warring, and the younger shall lead the older. Now, I think it is beyond incredulous not to know and believe that Isaac was aware of this. God has spoken on how the blessing will go down, on who is the heir of the promise. And this should be something that, that Isaac would be intimately aware of. For you see, he was not technically the firstborn. Ishmael was. But God had spoken and said, 
in Isaac shall your seed be named. God is in charge. Remember too what we saw later in chapter 25. That Esau wanted nothing to do with the promise or the birthright. He sold it for a bowl of lentil soup. Now you'll recall, I mean, it wasn't even filet mignon. I mean, one could think about selling one's birthright for a nice filet, perhaps wrapped in bacon, with good potatoes on the side. But come on, bean soup? And you'll remember that he did it in a rash way, trying to fill his belly. Give me the red stuff. Give me the red stuff. Esau doesn't really show much improvement here. We looked at the end of chapter 26 for a reason. Esau manages to break the marital commandments not once but twice. It's bad enough that he marries a Canaanite woman, someone outside the covenant, someone he should not. Isaac should know this. He found his wife when his father sent a servant on a long journey to find her. But not only that, he becomes a polygamist. He marries a second Canaanite woman. And you can just imagine, any of you that have, well, I'm sure this has never happened in your home, so fantasize with me. You've had, imagine if it were possible to have difficulties with in-laws. Life was bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. You can just imagine how miserable it would be to have in your home, in your encampment, someone who hated God and His promise. All of this is known by Isaac. And Isaac, the great patriarch of faith, responds to all of this knowledge by saying, I'll do it my way. Do you see what he does here? He calls Esau, his older son, to him and he says, My son, let me tell you what we will do. And he shows, like son, like father. Esau sold his birthright for some bean soup. Isaac is willing to give his blessing based not on the word of God, but based on his stomach. Bring me that good food I like, and then I'll give you the blessing. You know I love you, Esau, because you give me the food I like to chew on. One would wonder if Esau was a bit more of a godly man, he would probably be offended by that. Could you imagine saying that to your child? You know, I really love you because of the way you clean your room. I love you because you cook me eggs for breakfast. That's why I love you. It's insulting. But you see, Isaac has valued himself and his own needs, and he's willing to bless for this food, and we are introduced to a reality that is beyond the reality. He was old and his eyes were dim that he could not see. Now, the irony here is he's in the worst position to make the decision and he's insisting that he make the decision. He can't even tell who's who. And he is going to substitute his judgment for God's. Isn't that a lesson for us? In our weakness... We struggle with the most basic of things. Should I refinance now or later? Do 
Do I buy the blue car or do I buy the red car? And yet we think that we can make decisions that God is not capable of. That we will determine what is best for us and for our family. Putting aside the Word of God, fashioning it according to our own means. And so Isaac's senses fail him and we gain an insight here that he is truly blind and it doesn't just have to do with how many fingers am I holding up. He's blind because he cannot see the reality of life. He has lost sight of the promise. He's lost sight of God. And you see, he wants complete control. The way he speaks to Esau is interesting. We see it here in verses 2 through 4. It's a series of commands, of imperatives. Take your weapons. Go out in the field. Hunt. Prepare. Bring. Who's in charge here, boy? Do what I'm telling you. And then everything will be all right. This is the real danger of ignoring God's Word. It's not just that we lose the wisdom that's found in God's Word. We actually begin to believe our own lies. We believe that we know and that we are in control. Isaac has his willfulness, but then we are introduced to another figure. His wife, Rebecca. And we're introduced to her rebellion. Now she is in an interesting spot. She hears this conversation that goes on. And she knows what's right. The prophecy had been given to her. And she has, we might think at first glance, a just cause. She could be nervous. Isaac is going to mess up the promise. He's going to mess up the blessing. Doesn't he know that God spoke to me and it's supposed to be Jacob? God's word was meant to be a comfort to Rebecca, but it winds up doing the exact opposite. And this is in keeping with her character. Now, think about this whole scene that's going on here. Have you ever seen a family where there was less trust? Where there was less integrity? Isaac says to Esau, come on, let's go off so no one can hear us and we'll hatch a plot for you to get the blessing. And Rebecca's response is to do what? To eavesdrop on them. I don't want you to have a picture in your mind of Rebecca, some kind of matriarchal figure who is somehow pious before the Lord and seeking His wisdom. No, this is a woman kneeled down in front of the keyhole, looking through being quiet. If they had in the tents glasses, she'd have the glass out up against the door, trying to hear. She's in complete rebellion here. And so her response then is to go from there to meeting Jacob and then to plotting with him. You see, no one trusts anyone here. This is like a spy movie. There are agents and double agents. You don't know who to trust. And she also is filled with sin. Her sin is that she is usurping authority, a twofold usurpation, that of her husband and that of God. She has gone about 
taking the word of God and the promise to Jacob and using it to divide the family. Do you see the little adjectives here in verse 5? Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son, Esau. And then what does she do? She goes and speaks to her son, Jacob. This is like one of these bad sitcoms where the roommates fight and they get out a piece of tape and they put it down the middle of the room and they say, you stay on your side, I'll stay on my side. There's a real battle going on here. And there is a real challenge here, ladies, for you. Oftentimes I am asked or we think about the concept of what does it mean to submit as a woman? And usually the question comes around to, but what do I do when my husband's going to do something really stupid? Shouldn't I just trick him? Make him think it's his idea? And later on we'll all get a good laugh about it and the right thing will happen. Genesis 27 says no. It says no. Because that's exactly what Rebecca does. She does not acknowledge the authority of her husband, but even worse, she doesn't acknowledge the authority of God. What a shocking lack of faith. It's as if she hears this conversation, looks up and says, Lord, I can fix this. I'll take care of it. You can have the day off. Do you see what she doesn't do? She doesn't go to the Lord in prayer. She doesn't wait to see what God will do. After all, it's His promise. She doesn't do the very hard thing of going to her husband and saying, I heard this conversation, and you do know that you are going against the Word of God. Don't you remember? No, instead, it's much easier for her, it seems, to take the path of sin. And in a very real sense, she's being just like Isaac. She knows better. She's actually willing to risk the wrath of God. Do you see that? When Jacob is a bit skittish, she says, the curse will come down on me. Don't you worry about it. I got this handled. Is that how you're tempted to go through life? Thinking you have things handled. You want to know what's the most frightening thing about that? A good deal of the time, we can handle life can't we? When things are humming along, when there's no potholes in the road, we think it's us. Our hands are on the steering wheel. We know where we're going. And the real danger is then the very first time that we are confronted with our own sin, the first time that we are confronted with a real need to trust God, we don't. We look back to ourselves. But there's a third person here who is involved in this fray, and that, of course, is Jacob. And we see his deception involved in the plot. Now, he hesitates. His mother has hatched this plan, and he says, I don't know about this. I don't know if we should do this. Now, please note that he has no problem with doing it. He doesn't say, Mom, really? Should we really do that? Shouldn't we trust God? I know He'll take care of us. He doesn't relate to her all of the stories how God had preserved Abraham and Sarah and his father and mother. 
No, he says, I don't want to get caught and get punished. And you see, if we're honest to ourselves, that's a mirror of us too, isn't it? How many times have you said to yourself, I will not take that action, I will not do that sin because, ooh, I don't want to be grounded. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to have bad things happen to me. And you see, that's not real godly behavior. Real repentance is not about being sorry for being caught. Real repentance is about seeking the Lord. And Jacob is, of course, easily willing to be manipulated. And his sin stinks to high heaven. He goes in and he begins with the first lie. Who are you? Well, I'm Esau. Now, the very first thing he does is lie and sin. Isaac gives him another opportunity. He says, well, you know, how in the world, really, how did you ever get this food this fast? And then he not only sins with respect to lying, look at what Jacob says. He says, well, I did it because the Lord your God blessed me. So now he not only lies, he blasphemes against the living God. He draws God into the lie. Jacob is sinning not just against Esau, not just against Isaac, but against his God. Sin always grows and expands. We think we are able to control it, and we are not. So here we have three figures sinning against God. What does God do? Can they wrest control away from God? Will they ruin everything? Will Messiah be lost because of the sinful behavior of His people? No. Because we see that God is present and He shows that He is in control no matter what. God is in control over the situation. And the very first thing He shows that He is in control over is over Esau's insincerity. Now the blessing goes to Jacob. And Esau is all upset. He cries out with a loud voice. And we are tempted, I think, to look at Esau and say, Oh, I feel so bad for him. Here the poor guy was just going out to shoot Bambi and make some nice steaks for Dad. And look at what happens. And it's almost like, it's almost like a movie. You can hear the, the music. It's like Jacob walks out one door and Esau comes in the other. He misses him by a split second. And we're tempted to think, this is so bad for Esau. I wonder if somehow it'll be made right. And Esau will get the blessing. But you see, we can't look at this this way. We have to remember the context. Esau is a man of the world. Esau didn't want the birthright. He didn't want the blessing. He doesn't want God. All he wants is to fill his belly and to seem important. Esau actually wanted to deceive. You see, he knows the blessing belongs to Jacob. The prophecy is there and he swore an oath that he would give it over. But he is willing to deceive. He goes out with Isaac 
And they hatch their own plan to steal the blessing. This is like one of these con games. Jacob and Rebekah steal it before Esau and Isaac can steal it. Nobody is in the right here. And we see the true nature of who Esau is. Look at verse 41. The very first thing he says is, the minute the old man is out of the picture, whack, it's all over. Now think about who Esau is here. Not only does he say this, that is what calms him down. He feels good about the thought of killing his brother. That gives him pleasure. That's who Esau is. You see, his loud cries are just that. Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 and verse 15 and 17, it says, Do not be like ungodly Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, although he sought it with tears. This is not real repentance. This is, I'm missing out, I'm mad, and I'm going to pitch a fit. And God here is showing that he knows Esau is insincere and he is in control. You cannot fool God. The second thing that God shows that he's in control over is Jacob and Rebekah's manipulation. Now we might think here that sort of all's well that ends well. Jacob was supposed to get the blessing. He gets the blessing. It's a large blessing. Isaac goes over the top, so to speak. And we may say, well, this is what was supposed to happen. We're glad that Jacob and Rebekah intervened. If they didn't, think about what would have happened. But that is a man-centered view of the world. And if we're not careful, that creeps into our church and it creeps into our lives. God can't use our church unless we do this. I won't be able to witness to others unless I do that. And we become master manipulators. No one could possibly understand the gospel unless we have the right lighting and the right music and the right atmosphere. Unless you think that is a bit of an exaggeration, I've just described the last half of the 19th century to a T. This is the way in which we approach evangelism. And you see, God says, your ways are not my ways. The blessing will be given to Jacob, but it will be given to Jacob on God's terms. He is the one whose will still reigns. The sin of his people does not stop God. This is an important thing for us to think about, especially if you are tempted to depression and despair as you look at the sin of God's people, the church, and you think somehow in your heart of hearts, in the dark night of your soul, that somehow the kingdom is going to fall apart because the American church doesn't give enough to missions or isn't faithful enough to marriage, 
or doesn't testify enough in the community. But you see, God is the one who is in control. We can't mess it up. Do you believe that? If you do, then you will be bolder than ever in following the Lord because you know it doesn't all hang on your hands, but in the Lord's. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there are not consequences to the sin of God's children. This happens here to Jacob and Rebekah. Now, think about this. Jacob gets the blessing, but if Rebekah had waited on the Lord, prayed to the Lord, spoken to Isaac, it would have happened perhaps... Very quickly, and certainly without all of these consequences. There's irony that stick here where she says to Jacob, you must leave and go because I don't want to lose both of my sons at one time. She's outsmarted God again. Do you know what happens? She loses both of her sons at one time. The scripture records for us that she never sees Jacob again, ever. And just a bit into the next chapter, we see that Esau leaves and goes to dwell at Mount Seir. She thinks she's outsmarted God. She thinks that she's in control. And the consequences are that God teaches her who is exactly in control. Jacob thinks that finally he has gained what he needs and he has grasped and he pays a heavy price. He loses the promised land that is his for more than 20 years. He will be gone. He goes from a place of wealth and luxury to being a slave. We'll see it later, but just remember, Jacob is going to work at slave labor for 21 years to get some of what he had and the wife he wants. 21 years. And in perhaps the greatest irony, the master deceiver we're going to see in weeks to come is the object of deception. Laban pulls a fast one over him on him, not once, but twice. God is teaching him that he is in control. There is one final thing that I want you to see. If you noticed, I haven't gotten to one last person to see that God is in control. And that's Isaac. God shows that he is in control over Isaac's disobedience. Remember the context here of Isaac. He is trying to manipulate God's word. He's trying to get what he wants and what his base desires are. He wants to give the blessing based on the food that he likes. And he blesses the wrong guy. And quite frankly, we think about this. He's about as dumb as you can be. Right? He says, well, the voice is the voice of Jacob's, but I'm not sure about the hands, so it must be Esau. He can't see, and yet he trusts all his senses. Even his nose gives him away. He smells Esau's clothes. He's completely at sea. And we see here 
after he is blessed, in verse 32, Isaac is approached by Esau, and he says, Who are you? I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and bought it to me, and I ate it all before him, and I have blessed him? Yes, he shall be blessed. What we see there in those two verses is something like the conversion of Isaac. I don't mean that he comes to know the Lord first, but I mean here he comes to really understand and grasp the sovereignty of God in his life. He trembles very greatly, the text says, but the Hebrew is much more vivid. It's a whole phrase where a verb and a noun are the same word. And you get the idea that he's shaking. He's shaken to the core. He, he doesn't even know what to do. Because in a way he's met with God and God has explained to him through his providence that Isaac is not the person in control that he thought he was. This is not just trickery. You see, often I think we look at this text and we say, well, you know what the rules are. Isaac had to follow the rules. Once you give the blessing, you can't ever take it back. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Do we honestly think they're that dumb? Do we honestly think that somewhere, if Isaac is this concerned about it, if Esau is willing to kill someone, that they're going to say, oh, well, you know, I'd love to give it to you. But you know the unwritten rules say I can't. No. It's not because of a rule. It's because here Isaac sees in the midst of all of this that God has been at work in spite of him and that Jacob is the one to be blessed. That's what he sees. Isaac had fought God for 140 years about who was to receive the blessing. And now, ironically... The blind man sees. He sees who is control. He sees that God is the one who is superintending his way. It's why Hebrew says in chapter 11, By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Do you see God in his providence in your life? Has God shown you that He's in control of you, of your days, of your blessings? If He has, thank Him for it. If you still are not sure, then seek after Him. For you see, this is where true life is found. This is where real blessing is. It is found in knowing that the Lord God is in control and that nothing that we can do can mess it up. That is a liberating thought. The wonderful theologian Martin Luther had a way of putting it in his, his earthy goodness. When he was asked by a man who was fretting over a decision what to do, Luther looked at him and he said, go and sin boldly. Now, he didn't mean go and let it all hang out. What he meant was God's in control and he's in control even of your sin. By faith, act and trust Him. 
And I call upon you this morning to do the same. Trust the Lord with your children. Trust the Lord with your marriage. Trust the Lord with your job. Trust the Lord with your nation. He's in control. And all things are being worked together for His glory. And for the glory of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.